Well, praise the Lord, we're back in Acts chapter 5. We ended chapter 4 last week. Brad tells me we have a lot of folks that are watching online. Sweet. Glad you're there. We wish you were here. But we're glad you're watching online. We pray that God blesses you as well through this long weekend. Well, last week we ended chapter 4. We saw God using Peter and John in the power of the Holy Spirit, not only healing a beggar, but through the healing, Peter was given an opportunity to preach to those around, to the crowd that was there. Now, we said in the past that miracles are always done in order to bring glory to God. And the opportunity to tell others about the power of God in someone's life. So now we come to chapter 5. And this is a well-known account. I'm sure all of us have read it. They know it. It's the account of Ananias and Sapphira. So we're going to read the account, and then we're going to go back and talk about what is happening here. First time I read this, I was taken aback a little bit. But as you study, you'll realize why it happened. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says, There was a man also named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, but he claimed it was the full amount. His wife had agreed to this deception. Then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was yours to give away. How could you do such a thing as this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men wrapped him in a sheet and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, what was the price? Was this the price you and your husband received for the land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of doing a thing like this, conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord? Just outside that door are the young men who buried your husband, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and all others who heard, and all others who heard what had happened. Now, how many of you, when you read that, felt that was kind of harsh? Kind of rough for God to do that for, for this infraction. And it may appear that God is just waiting for the first person to do something wrong and then just bring judgment down upon them. But we're going to see it's a little bit more than that. We're going to find out what happened, what is happening to cause this event to occur. Now, back at the end of the last chapter, we see this in verse 32. It says, All the believers were of one heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, and they shared everything they had. Everyone was unified. The church was on board for the same mission. They were all unified in one pursuit of what God had called them to do. And I believe that for any work of God to succeed, Christians and the church have to be on the same page. We have to be unified in our pursuit of God's will. And this occasion prompted believers to contribute to the work of God, and it appears everyone contributed everything they had. And Luke gives us an example of what they were doing in Acts 4.36. He says, for instance, there was Joseph, the one apostle's name Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he had owned and bought with the money 
to the apostles and brought the money to the apostles for those in need. Now Barnabas is going to be an important part of this mission and this ministry in the church. And he's mentioned later in the Bible about 25 more times. Barnabas was the one who encouraged Paul in his ministry. And not everyone has the same gifting. How many understand that? Barnabas was never noted as being a preacher. But he was noticed, noticed as being an encourager. One who came behind and helped those who were doing God's work. Not everyone can be a Paul or Peter or John. But Barnabas, each one of us can be a Barnabas to encourage others. Barnabas was a behind-the-scenes believer. He was a spirit-filled man that God used to further his kingdom. We may not all be Billy Grahams, but we can all be a Barnabas to somebody else. So Barnabas at the time was probably thanked for his contribution. His name may have been recognized. God doesn't record much of that. But I'm sure he got a lot of accolades from those around him. He was, an, he was going to be an important figure in the times to come. So what happens when people see someone else getting all the accolades and the praise for something they do? Do they get jealous? Do we sometimes secretly desire the appreciation that someone else may be getting? Do we feel that we've been neglected in ours because someone else is receiving appreciation? It's easy to fall in the trap of jealousy and wanting to be like someone else. And it happens that way, especially in ministry too. No different. Not all of us have the same gifts and abilities, but God doesn't expect us to be someone that we're not. However, Ananias and Sapphira were succumbing to the jealousy and the desire to have appreciation. They won the same notoriety that Barnabas received. Verses 1 and 2. We'll go through it verse by verse. There was a man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property, not all, but some. He brought part of the money to the apostles, but he claimed it was the full amount, and his wife agreed to that. George MacDonald says this, Half of the world's misery comes from trying to look rather than trying to be something that we're not. They were pretending to be something that they weren't. And what does Jesus call this? There's a word for that. Trying to be something that you're not. Hypocrisy, right? The word literally means to wear a mask or to play as an actor. This does not mean we fail to be perfect in our desire to live up to what God wants us to be because we're not, none of us are perfect. But when we deliberately try to deceive someone into thinking that we're something that we're not, the Bible calls that hypocrisy, and the world thinks that the church is what? Hypocrites. Why? Because sometimes they see us living lives that are different from what we claim to live in church. Warren Wiersbe tells a story of when he was building his first new sanctuary. I like this. Building his first church, and he said to the architect, look, I want to put a great big front on the church, a great big facade on the front of the church so people see it and are impressed. And the architect said, absolutely not. Because you're not going to put a front on to the world that's not happening in the church. 
He said, the church stands for truth and honesty, and I will not design one that has a facade. The building should tell the truth and not pretend to be what it isn't. Wow. Ananias and Sapphira were trying to put on a facade to those around them, a nice front for everyone to see who they were. Now, the word Ananias literally means God is gracious. And sometimes in our desire to know God as being gracious, we forget that God is also holy and perfect. When I first read this, I thought that's a kind of a rough judgment on these two. Couldn't God have warned them about doing it and given them a second chance? Now, remember, this is the beginning of the church, the very beginning of Christianity in general. And if God wants the church to start off right, he has to stop every semblance of sin and pride at the very beginning before it gets into the church. Now, who was behind Ananias and Sapphira's deception? The enemy. Verse 3 says, Then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? The Bible tells us to what? Not let the devil get a foothold. Right? If this wasn't stopped in its tracks, the enemy would have <clears throat> infiltrated the very first church. Historically, when persecution on the church is from the outside, the church is the strongest. How many know that? Where, it's per where you're being persecuted as a church, your faith, the people who are being persecuted, their faith is strong more strong than those of us who live in a place where there is no persecution. However, when the trouble starts from within the church, we become the weakest. The enemy can't beat us coming at us from the outside, but he can beat us coming from the inside. Damage to churches is the worst when it comes from within. God had to stop it and make people understand the way that God's church is supposed to be. And there can't be any sin, there can't be any hypocrisy, there can't be any lying, there can't be any pride in the beginning of God's church. And God was gonna deal with that right away. Most churches wither and die from within. At least in America, churches don't die because someone comes against it. Either through church splits, church leaving the truth of God's word, church is not willing to change to meet the spiritual needs of society. All of this is a result of the enemy infiltrating the church and causing destruction from the inside. That's why God was so hard on Ananias and Sapphira because he wants them and us to understand the serious consequences of sin in God's church. They lied. Who does the Bible say the father of lies is? The devil, right? So God was not judging them. He was also judging Satan at that moment. He was not going to tolerate deception in his church. and He was not going to tolerate the motivator behind that deception, which was pride, original sin. Satan got kicked out of heaven for pride. 
The enemy probably whispered in their ear, hey, you can get the same appreciation and look just as spiritual as Barnabas did. People in the church will love you for this. You're going to be somebody and you get to keep some of your money. God hates pride. Probably more than any other sin. Acts 3 and 4 says, You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was yours to give away. How could you do such a thing like this? You are lying not to us but to God. Notice what's happening here. The Bible believes that these guys were Christians. Most commentators that I've read believe that they were Christians. For them to attend this service, they had to be checked out first. The church was being persecuted at this time, so you had to want to go, and the people in the church made sure that those who were attending were believers, not people who were infiltrating it to expose it and subject them to, to persecution. So they were checked out by other Christians to make sure that they were in true to believers in Christ. You couldn't just show up to a, to a synagogue or a temple or a church at that time for fear of being turned into the authorities. So they had to, they had to check them out. These folks were also well known in the community. The Bible also says that they lied to the Holy Spirit. That means they have to be believers to lie to the Holy Spirit. If you're, you have the Spirit in you and you're lying to the Spirit, you are a believer. But now notice that Peter begins to operate in the gifts of the Spirit. We've been talking through Acts and Pentecost and, and the gifts and the baptism. Now the Holy Spirit begins to protect his church and work in his church. First Peter operates in the discerning of spirits. What's the first thing he says? How did Satan so fill your heart? How did Peter know that unless God gave him that word of wisdom? There's no way to know that. There's no way to know that these, the property was sold at a different price. Then he gives them a word of knowledge about the price and what they're turning in. How would he know that unless God filled his mind with a word of knowledge for that particular instance? So the Holy Spirit is beginning to protect and guard the church. Verses 5 and 6, as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men wrapped him in a sheet and took him out and buried him. The Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's okay to have godly fear in your life, right? And we sang the song, you know, there's no more fear. But godly fear is just simply reverential trust in God. I'll give you an example. How many of you were afraid of your parents growing up? It's okay. It's okay to be afraid of your parents. How many of you said to yourself, my dad's going to kill me if I do this? Right? You were afraid. It's okay. You knew that if you did something wrong, you were in heap big trouble. You were afraid of what the consequences were. You were afraid of your parents. Did that mean your parents didn't love you? No. It means that you were afraid of them because they loved you. If they didn't care, nothing would happen. If we sin, we should fear the consequences of sin. And sometimes I think we don't fear that as much. We don't fear not only the natural consequences of sin, but we don't 
fear God's judgment of sin. It goes on in verse 7, it says, About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Was this the price you and your husband received for the land? Peter was giving her an opportunity to come clean. God was long-suffering, Peter was long-suffering, allowing her a chance to repent and get right. Now, she didn't know what happened, obviously. Because if she knew what happened, you'd think that she would automatically fess up, but she didn't. And I believe the enemy keeps you in the dark when it comes to consequences. This was such a tremendous historic act where someone just dropped dead in God's presence in the church. You would think the whole town would know about it by now. But his wife, of all people, didn't know. Why? Because the enemy doesn't tell you what the negative consequences of sin are. He thinks, he lets you think you're going to get away with it. He lets you think, no big deal. He lets you think you'll be fine. Nothing happened to your husband, he's good. You'll be fine. If he told you and if he revealed to you all the consequences of your action, I'm sure all of us would stop doing it at that moment. But the point is, God tells you what the consequences are. And just because we don't instantly receive those consequences, we kind of think that God's not going to punish us and not going to get us right with him. The enemy will do everything he can to not let you realize the outcome of your choices. When temptation comes, all he will tell you is all the fun you're going to have. All the great times, everything is going to work out perfect. He's not going to tell you one consequence of that action. And he'll definitely not tell you how much you're going to suffer because of it. So verse 8, she replied, yes, that was the price. So she went into recognition just as much as her husband did. Spouses, do not follow what your spouse is doing when you know that it is wrong. Do not let him talk you into doing something that you know God says not to do because you will be held equally guilty. Acts 5, 9. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of doing a thing like this, conspiring together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Now the Holy Spirit rises up again, gives Peter that word of knowledge, knowing that they conspired. He could have thought the husband did it by himself. It was all his act but he knew it was the two of them. The word of knowledge came about his wife being an integral part of that decision. And right after that, the Holy Spirit gives a prophecy through him to, Anani uh, to Sapphira. In verse 9, he says, Just outside that door are the young men who buried your husband, and they will carry you out too. Here we see many gifts of the Spirit in operation. Almost all of them with a negative connotation to rid the church of sin. God was protecting his church, allowing it to start out right with no infiltration of the enemy, not letting him get a foothold. Why? Because the gifts of the Spirit are designed to benefit the church. In both edification as well as correction and judgment. And the result of their sin, again, instantly she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, 
they carried her outside and buried her beside her husband. The church went from great power and great grace, which they had at the beginning, now to great fear. Back in Acts 4.33, it says, when the, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. They had the blessings of God. They had everything that they wanted, they had. The one thing they didn't have was fear yet. If we're only here for the good times and what we're God, God's going to do, but we don't have a holy reverential trust for what God is doing, we're going to miss out. And God may intervene in a supernatural way. Verse 11, it says, Great fear gripped the entire church and all the others who heard what had happened. And every commentary I read this week says all three of those should be present in every church. You should have great grace, you should have great power, and you should have great fear. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be destroyed, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. I heard a sermon once, I think I've mentioned before, that the title was, Jesus is not your buddy. He's not your buddy. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. He is holy and righteous and perfect, and we are not. And we should come into his presence realizing that he is holy. And when we realize it, how God has allowed us as sinful people to come into his presence, just off the street as we are, man, God is holy and we're able to come and stand before him. For that reason, we should be thankful and realize God's grace. While we can enjoy the goodness and grace of our loving Father, we also need to have a holy fear as well. If we don't have a holy fear of God more than a desire to please others or even please ourselves, we will be tempted to allow the world's influences, our own evil desires, and the enemy to gain a foothold. God wants a holy church. Right? He's returning, to, he's returning for a church that is spotless and blameless. It's our job under the direction of the Holy Spirit to make sure that God's church is what God wants it to be. I was telling the kids today, it was a, I'm trying to get them, they're all going to graduate in a year or so, and I want them to be rock solid when they leave. And I asked them, I said, so, most of them are Christian families, and I said to them, for your faith to be your own, that means if your entire family recants and they stop serving God, would you still serve God? Or do you come because they make you come? So you're going to be out of the house in a year or two, or three, however many years. Are you prepared to, when you leave, and you have all the negative influences around you, no protection of the family, no making them go to church, are you still going to serve God? Or do you only come because... Your friends come, your families come. I said, I want you to be confident that if no one around you, even your family, quit serving God, that you're still going to do it. And they all said, oh, yeah, 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 we'll, we'll do that. When we serve God, we have to do it on our own. 
we have to be sure that what we do is what God wants us to do, not what we think God wants us to do. That's why I keep stressing knowing God's word. Because there's so many ideas and so many things out there that sound good, that sound like it might work. It sounds like we could give God a hand. We have to be careful at the things that we want to introduce into our own lives, introduce into the church. We have to be sure that what they are are scriptural, God-honoring, and not something that we want to do, but more of what God wants us to do with them. If we're a holy church, we will be what God wants us to be. And everything else follows that. I was able to share with the seniors Friday night. And basically the whole point was when you leave the comfort of your school and you leave the comfort of your home, are you still going to have a faith? Are you still going to be strong? Are you still going to trust God? And are you going to finish well? God wants to see how we finish, not so much how we start. So when we finish, as Paul, as Paul said, I fought the fight, kept the faith, now there's a crown laid up for me. When we go out into the world every day of the week, do we focus on how our lives can be holy and reflective of who Jesus is and are our lives attractive to the people around us? Do we live what we believe? Or do we try to put on a front of who we aren't, but who other people think we should be? Are we a hypocrite wanting accolades and attention for someone that we're not? Or do we live our lives as God wants us to live and let that be the attraction that draws people to Christ? God wants us to be holy. God wants us to honor him. And it's an ongoing job every day, is it not? It's a, it's a job to keep making God first in your life. Would you stand as we close this morning? Every head bowed if you would, eyes closed. And the Bible says that God chastens those he loves. He says the same about parents. He says that so that we understand that there is a hierarchy in our faith. That God is the boss. That God is the God of the universe. And that we are not. And in a home life, you have the parents and you have the children. Parents are the parents and the children are not. 
And God sets it up that way so that there can be a loving relationship between the two. So that our Father can allow things and can do things to us that He knows is for our good. Just like as parents, we do things and allow things for our children that we know for them are good. And when God says there are certain things I want you to do, there are certain things I don't want you to do, we have to understand that those are for our good. And when the Bible says we should have the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of our wisdom and knowledge of Him. And the word fear is not we're afraid of, but it's reverential trust, that we trust that what our Father is doing is for our good. We may not particularly like it at that moment. We may disagree with it, just like our children may not like what we do and disagree with what we do. But we do it because we know what we know and we know what's best. And our Father knows what's best as well for us. And He calls us to live a holy life and be part of a holy church. Not the least of which is to prevent us from suffering the consequences of our sin. When we tell our children not to do things, we're doing it to protect them from themselves. When God says, I want you to do this or not do that, He's doing it to protect us from ourselves. And so we should gladly want to be what Jesus calls us to be. Every one of us here, I'm sure, loves Jesus. And we want that relationship with Him to grow. But on the offhand that you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you may have heard about Jesus or you know about Him from being taught occasionally, but you don't have a relationship with Him like you hear us talking about here. A Father that loves you and cares for you and wants the best for you. And you want to know that Jesus. You want to have that relationship that you hear other people talking about. If that's you, the Bible says you're not here by accident. You're here because God has a plan and a purpose for you. And you're here because the Holy Spirit brought you here today for this exact moment. If you don't know Jesus, the Bible says He wants to know you, but you have to make the choice to do that. And if that's you, I want you to raise your hand right now. All right, I'm going to believe all the rest of us are committed followers of Christ with our desire to be what Jesus wants us to be. The Bible says we're never going to be perfect this side of heaven. And we are going to fail many, many times. The difference is, what does our heart say? Our heart's desire is to do what we know to do. And so we're going to pray that God continues to fill our heart, continues to fill our mind, so that our actions line up with what we want them to do. Paul said in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Who will help me with this? And chapter 8 says it's the Holy Spirit that helps him.
So, Father, we stand before you this morning. And in our hearts and in our lives, we want to be the best we can be. We want to be holy before you. We want to present to you a church without spot or wrinkle. Knowing that we're not perfect, Lord, we want our hearts to be right before you. So I pray for each person here that, God, you would fill us with your spirit. Allow us to continue to follow the leading of your spirit. Allow us to live our lives out of gratitude for what you've done for us, the sacrifice you made so that we can enjoy all the blessings we have now. We don't want to take that for granted, Lord. We, we know the pain and the suffering you went through so that we can be here today. Help us to live our lives in gratitude for that, in reflection of that. So when people see us, they will see a, gra a gracious and thankful person. Bless each person as they celebrate this Memorial Day weekend. Allow them to focus on the blessings you've given them and help us to focus on the cost behind the blessings we have. Father, we love you this morning. We love you and we appreciate you and we don't forget all that you've done for us and all the blessings that we have in this world today. Go with us as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a tremendous week. We'll see you Wednesday night. God's blessing. Have a great Memorial Day.